Welcome to the College Sports Insider, presented by the NCAA and Champion Magazine. I'm Jack Ford. We're delighted to have with us today Brian Hendrickson, who's the executive editor of the Champion Magazine. And Brian, there are so many interesting stories out there in the world of sport. And I want to focus today on, on one because I thought that in watching this story unfold, and it has to do with the demise of, of UAB, University of Alabama, Birmingham football, and then the resurrection of the football program there. And there, there were so many compelling aspects of the story. And, and you did a marvelous article that appeared um, in Champion Magazine, and it, and it told the story. And I thought it, it, it'd, be, it'd be worthwhile for us to have a chat about it. Um, so let, let's start off with, the, with the, the bigger picture, if you will. And that is University of Alabama, Birmingham, and, and its football program. We all know about Alabama and Tuscaloosa and that, that legendary program. But how about the University of Alabama, Birmingham? What was the history of its football program? Well, uh, it, it started around in the early 1990s. Uh, when uh, their AD at the time, uh, kind of just kind of a visionary guy, he, uh, he recognized that uh, football was going to be a driver, uh, f- not just for the athletic program, but for the university. He felt like, you know, like a lot of schools do now, that uh, football's part of the social component of col- the college experience. And so he started, decided we, we really need to, to start a, uh, a, the football program here. We need to be more than a basketball school, especially in the South, uh, where football is king, as and everybody it, and knows. And it ha- did have some, some really good success from the basketball program. Yeah, uh, I mean, the basketball program has been a, you know, has had its, its share of winning seasons seasons over time and making it to the NCAA tournament, making some runs. But, uh, you know, he really kind of felt like, you know, th- we really need football to be part of the culture of the school uh, for us to continue to grow. Um, and so really kind of from the early stages, though, it was th- there was a lot of contention uh, between the football program there and the football program in Tuscaloosa, uh, or at least there was a, a strong current of, uh, you know, feeling that way amongst the UAB community uh, kind of so- goes... Were they, were they getting a feeling, and, and, you know, I'm talking to people and looking at your article, uh, and, and again, I, I don't mean to, to be indicting anybody, but it sounds as if a lot of the folks at Tuscaloosa were saying, no, 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 we have an Alabama football program here. Thank you very much. And it's done really well. We won national championships. We don't need another one. Was that one of the problems? Well, it's it's it kind of, I, I think that from a UAB standpoint, there's a feeling that, yeah, Tuscaloosa's got this covered. We don't need another football program in the state. We have one University of Alabama football program. And where the tensions really kind of took off, at least, you know, amongst the UAB community, in 1993, it was exposed that the athletic director, Gene Bartow, you know, who was a successful basketball coach, started the basketball program at UAB, actually took over for John Wooden uh, when Wooden retired uh, and really kind of had a lot of difficulties with that transition there because, you know, UACLA people just looked at him as you're no John Wooden. Uh, he kind of came back to came to UAB, started the basketball program there, uh, and then as he's getting the football program started, he wrote a letter to the NCAA's enforcement division that was later printed in the LA Times. It was basically making some accusations of uh, the, the Alabama football program, and uh, it reached the level in which he basically said, uh, "Hey, uh, you know." There's a reason why we're not getting some of the recruits that are ending up at Alabama here. These are some people that were trained under Bear Bryant. And so, you know, if you're taking Lord Bryant's name in vain, uh, you know, in, in Alabama, that's really a, a pretty 
It's yeah. close to a capital offense. That's a capital offense there. And uh, it just so happens that Paul Bear Bryant Jr. Uh, was on the board of trustees at the University of Alabama uh, or Alabama system uh, into the 2000s. He just retired a couple of years ago. And so it led to a lot of conspiracy theories amongst Alabama fans that everybody I talked to down there about it felt that there was kind of a current of truth. And you know how this is, you know, when, when you're in a situation like this, there's always these kind of, when, when a program's struggling, you know, it, it's easy for narratives to develop of this is why we're struggling. Right. Somebody's holding us down. And so a lot of the UAB community looked to some actions by the board of trustees as UAB's football program is really struggling to get its feet under them and going, hey, we had a plan to, to build a stadium and the board of trustees shut it down. We had a plan to uh, hire Jimbo Fisher, now a national champion football coach at Florida State. Uh, he had agreed to become UAB's football coach. The board of trustees uh, uh, nixed the contract. Uh, and so, and then, you know, it really kind of developed this this really strong feeling of resentment toward the leadership in the UA in the Alabama University of Alabama, you know, uh, system leadership that they wanted UAB football shut down. Um, and, and there are a lot of people associated with the UAB community that will not believe otherwise. It, it almost sounds as if, you know, in the political world, you often hear the expression that very quickly the perception becomes the reality. It, 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 does it does that make sense? Does that do you think that's what was playing out there also in in terms of those perceptions becoming reality in the minds of the UAB folks? I, I think, kind of in our society in general, uh, when we're facing adversity, we tend to start putting people into boxes protagonists and antagonists mm -hmm. to explain why we're struggling rather than embrace the grays that are out there in the world. Life is never as simple as having one good guy against one bad guy, right? But a lot of times in order to make something very complicated, uh, that's something that we don't deal with on a daily basis, easier to explain. We, we just kind of revert into these basic storytelling techniques in order to be able to explain away what is hurting us or what is difficult to understand. And so I think for a lot of UAB fans, a lot of the supporters who really wanted to see the football program take off, uh, as they were struggling to kind of help pull it up, uh, in, in, in really struggling with the fact that they had very little to work with at this program, it was pretty easy to, to be able to point the finger at the Board of Trustees and at Paul Bear Bryant Jr., with however amount of truth there really was behind, you know, some of these things, they could very easily point in that direction and say, this is the reason. So the program gets started. Give me a sense of, of, of tracking its progress. How was it, how was it doing up to the point where it, it was shut down? Well, they, they had a couple of, of good seasons. They made it to one bowl game. Uh, they, they, they were bowl eligible, I think, three times in their history. Uh, only went to one bowl, though, um, for reasons I'm not 100% sure of. Uh, and, uh, uh, but then for about the last 10 years before they, they shut down the program, the program was truly struggling. Uh, they went through a number of coaches, uh, didn't have a winning season for, I believe it was about 10 straight years. Uh, and it, I think more telling, though, was that they weren't drawing any fans. They were playing in an old stadium where the Iron Bowl used to be played in, in down, down in, uh, in you, uh, you, you paint a, a pretty compelling picture, literally word picture. You know, t talk a little bit about what the stadium was like and the, their game day environment was like. Well, I think, you know, what you really got to see is you got to go to Birmingham and you've got to drive down the street to the stadium. And there are there's literally a tree growing up through one abandoned house on that street. Uh, there is a, a roof collapsing on an old apartment complex on that street. Uh, it's just it's a it's a 
very poor section of Birmingham, one that's really that's really been struggling for a number of years. And so, you know, as as a fan, if you're driving down the street to this football stadium, it's it's not it's a rather intimidating picture in front of you. And then you get to the stadium and the stadium is really kind of a, a giant gray husk that's been around for 90, close to 90 years now. Uh, you can see it rusting uh, from the concourse underneath. You can see the railings rusting. Uh, you know, when we were there in the spring, there was part of the of the scoreboard had collapsed underneath the, the, the LED section of the scoreboard. Um, and so it's, uh, but I mean, I think the bigger thing is that it's huge. And if you're a program like UAB, you know, if you draw 20,000 fans, you're having a good game. And yet you might see the stadium is only half full. and yeah, It may, looks like looks like it's empty. It casts the impression that you have absolutely no support. Uh, and so it, it really, it just didn't fit for all the, the history and tradition of hosting the Iron Bowl in the stadium. It didn't fit this program whatsoever. So folks know what we're talking about. For, for years and years, Alabama and Auburn played there. Exactly. In Birmingham. They didn't play Tuscaloosa. They didn't play at Auburn. They played there. This is like the game, not just in Alabama, but really kind of the game in the South. Back then, one of the sports meccas. But as you said, with passage of time, and now they've, they've moved, the, the, the teams now play on their own home campuses. So that's kind of, it's lost its, literally and figuratively, lost its luster. Exactly. For about 20 years now, it hasn't hosted the Iron Bowl. UAB has been its primary tenant. And so, you know, it's just a, it's, it's a stadium that's really kind of passes time. The UAB community recognizes this isn't a good fit. They, you know, as far as uh, you know, about, you know, 10 years ago kind of realized we, if we're going to really move forward as a program, we need our own stadium. And so that was something that was recognized that if this program is going to not just survive, but thrive, there needs to be significant investment in this. But you're, you know, in, the, in that uh, the second to last season before they shut the program down, before they had the surge and actually became bowl eligible again in that last season, they the, they were struggling to draw 10,000 fans a game. So there were games where they were struggling, cl- drawing closer to 5,000 fans for those games in a stadium that seats 70,000 people. And so, you know, there was one game I was told of by the players where they actually asked the fans to move over from one side of the stadium all the way over to the other so that when ESPN was broadcasting, it would look like there was more fans there than there actually were. So what impact do you think? Because obviously, or I suspect, that the kind of rumors of the demise of the program were floating around for a period of time. What what impact did that have on things such as as recruiting for the program? Well, I think that it I think it had an impact on that. I think that it, it I think what a bigger thing that the rumors did is it drove a level of paranoia amongst the fan base and, and a fear that, oh, this is going to happen at any time. I think what happened, what impacted recruiting more than anything had to have been the facilities that they were working yeah. with. I mean, the, the practice field they were playing on, I, I had a hard time grasping this concept. The practice field sloped from end to end, 10 feet uh, from one end to the other. <laughs> and so you're going downhill, literally, when you're, when you're playing. And some of the players told me that, you know, at certain times in the program's history, they would literally put cones out in some of the pits in the field so that when they were running a route, they would avoid those cones Otherwise, they would step in this pit and, you know, could hurt themselves significantly. They'd be changing. You know, one player uh, told me about a time when they were cha- doing uh, taping ankles in the back of a truck because they didn't have a training facility to, to work out of. Um, the year before they shut the football program down, they managed to get out of their old locker room. And everybody was talking about this new locker room that they had. And when I walked into it, I was amazed that it was just kind of a recycled room. And these lockers were just freestanding lockers. Mm-hmm. Uh, that And they were they were 
they were nice. They were pretty mm-hmm. nice, but you know, they were just like almost looking like temporary lockers where you know other schools have these you know really elaborate nice lockers with custom nameplates on them. Mm-hmm. I, I saw some some of the nameplates were paper, and the players had like literally written their names on them and colored them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was mm-hmm. it was uh, you know either it was high school level kind of things, yeah. the facilities that they were working with, and so to recruit at the FBS level. You, with those kinds of facilities, I mean, you're you're going uphill every single day. Yeah. So how then does the the shutdown happen? Well, so Ray Watts, the school president, had just taken over, and he had been the dean of the medical school, um, had been over on the the medical school side of the school ever since he'd come back to UAB. He he was a, a Birmingham native, uh, got his undergrad from UAB, but then left to uh, pursue his you know other degrees and, and took a couple other jobs. Came back to UAB uh, about ten years before uh, being promoted to president, I believe, and so he was somebody that didn't have an athletics background. And so he goes in and he starts a strategic plan for taking UAB to the next level uh, over the next few years. And you know, he has these goals for you know attendance growth and or, uh, enrollment growth, I should say, mm-hmm. uh, and you know things like that. Uh, fundraising to build new buildings for certain schools, like the business school and things like that. Um, really trying to help establish the medical school, which is the only medical school in in the Alabama right. system, uh, and one of the and a very primary, well regarded medical school. By very the way. well regarded medical school, and UAB as a whole is like yeah. the, the top employer in Alabama. So his his he's got a goal to grow this, you know, important keystone of the, of the university. And so as part of this, he t- does an examination of the athletic program. And in particular, he wants to know what do we need to do with football uh, in order to make it viable or, you know, what is what is the future of football at this school going to look like? And what they came back with, they were kind of surprised that over the previous 10 years, they'd over the athletic department had overspent its budget by about a million dollars each year. And each year, the controller just basically just added a million bucks to the budget. And so over a period of 10 years, million dollar after million dollars after million dollars, it grew up to uh, a $10 million additional uh, uh, you know, surplus or a deficit in the budget each year that the university was having to cover. So by this point, when he's looking at this, the university is subsidizing $20 million of the athletics budget, which is about two-thirds of the athletics budget. And so Watts is a guy, again, not an athletics background. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he's looking at this kind of on an equal playing field with all the other schools at the university. And he's going, you know what? The other schools have to balance their budgets. They have to operate within their means. Uh, And athletics should be no different. And so, you know, if we can't, you know, pull this back all the way, well, we're going to hold our line with what we're given the the athletics department, and we're going to, to, uh, to cut some things back. And so this is Really, I mean, there's two things that really interested me in that. One is it's a very business way of looking at things, um, you know, in terms of, you know, profits and returns and, and, and things like that. And the other thing about it is that's really kind of what a lot of critics of the spending in college sports have said for years now. It's that, you know, why should you be spending so much money on coaching salaries? Why are you spending so much money on facilities development? Uh, you know, it's something that uh, other members of the university faculty and whatnot look at some of the construction of some of these facilities and, and it becomes an easy critical criticizing point for the athletics department. And so, you know, there's been this drumbeat for a while now about, you know, we should be reigning in spending here. We, we shouldn't be, you know, 
pouring all this money into athletics when other parts of the university need to have funding as well. And so uh, I think Watts was doing something that, you know, he'd be praised for by a lot of people uh, that are that are, have this criticism by saying, you know what, we're going to we're going to take a hard stance. We're going to take a realistic look at who we are. We're going to pull ourselves back. We're going to make men's basketball the marquee sport here again. Uh, we're going to try and be model Wichita State. Is right. ba- basically how it was explained to me. Uh, yeah. Which is Wichita State had at one point in time had a very substantial football program, and then at some point, for whatever a variety of reasons, says, you know what, we're we're going to do away with it, and we're going to continue with what we have. And they've been very successful as yeah. branding themselves as a basketball school. They've yeah. made some some successful runs in the final in the NCAA tournament. They've made the Final Four. Yeah. They have really helped to be able to elevate their profile nationally through basketball. So you know, I think that in one one hand, the way Watts was looking at things, as I as I say, it was, it was he was taking the rational point of view. Right. And you know, as you know, in, but how, in how sport- much of that? It, and you, it is rational. And for Wichita State, it, it probably people say it made a lot of sense. Although I'm sure there are a lot of people who bemoan the loss of the football program. But how much of a difference did it make that you're talking about the state of Alabama here, and football? And we know how football is viewed in Alabama. And you're also talking about the number one football, college football television market in America right. for Birmingham, many years. Al- yeah, running. people don't realize that Birmingham, Alabama, number one. When you when you look at the demographics of, of markets, it's for college football. It's Birmingham. College football is king there, and I think the the other thing that really started to come out of this, I think you know, you can take that rational point of view and go, all right, look, you know, this is who we can be, but you really had to stop and think culturally about the town that it was in, and what really I thought was compelling about this is that there are certain key leaders in the community who recognized, you know what. Football can be something so much bigger here. Maybe we're not a national champion kind of program. Maybe we're not, uh, you know, a, a program that you know kids in California are going to wear T-shirts saying UAB football. Maybe that's not who we are. But nevertheless, Birmingham has other things we're trying to accomplish, and football can be a driver for this. And part of that was, you know, this effort in Birmingham to revitalize itself and revitalize an image that had been hanging around since the civil rights era. Uh, when people focused on these images of, you know, uh, you know, police officers. Sure. The image of the fire hoses and police and dogs being set loose on civil rights. And it was in Birmingham. Exactly. And it was also the site of the church bombing that killed, I think it was four young African-American girls. And so there were a lot of these very lasting images that were sticky, uh, that that hung on on Birmingham for decades after this happened, whereas Nashville and Memphis and some of these other southern cities, Charlotte, had had really been able to become more progressive and and develop themselves into places that become very popular with millennials relocating to them in order to be able to start attracting the young workforce and becoming attractive to them. these city leaders realize we need to change this image. And if we get rid of football in this town, how could we possibly be viewed as progressive? So the, this decision is made to, to do away with football. And, and as you said, if you look at it in, in with one set of circumstances, it makes a lot of sense. But clearly, as you said, there was so much more involved in this. And you talked about the city of, of, of Birmingham and how, how it wanted to view itself and how it wanted the rest of the world to view it. So 
talk about the – I'll use the word unrest. I don't know if that's a correct word or not. But talk about the, 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 the concern, the unrest that was generated by that decision and how that then started to play out. Yeah, it's – it's. Uh, I, I think that you know if you're going to talk about the rational side of this decision, you have to acknowledge that college sports has a very strong irrational mm-hmm. side, right? I mean it's – it's uh, you know, UAB, that $20 million surplus – I mean $20 million deficit sounds really significant. But they weren't even one of the worst, uh, you know, in terms of overspending their budget in, in college sports. There were some, there, there were subsidies approaching forty million dollars. Uh, there are uh, uh, some schools that have, you know, made, you know, been pro- made taken prominent runs in the NCAA tournament that, you know, were almost entirely funded either by student fees or subsidies from the school. I mean, that's just kind of. The the thing about college sports is, it, as Mark Ingram said, you know, it's not a business, even though a lot of people try and label it as such. Mm-hmm. It's really it's not set up to make money in a lot of ways because, mm-hmm. you know, you're a lot of what you're bringing in is getting distributed out to the other sports and whatnot. So there's an intangible thing that is, you know, that is brought in by college sports that schools are willing to pay for, even when it exceeds the money that's bringing in. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the uh, as as uh, uh, this kind of the unrest got started, I think the person that that really drove this was Tim Alexander, who has an unbelievable story all to himself. I mean, this was a kid that was uh, a pretty highly recruited football player in high school, grew up close to Birmingham, uh, was involved in an auto accident when his friend uh, fell asleep at the wheel. They went down an embankment. Uh, he ended up being paralyzed. Uh, spent several years just trying to get his life back together. Uh, his uh, his insurance uh, didn't. Uh, it kind of ra- the lifetime benefit ran out uh, while he was dealing with his cervical injury. So he was still paralyzed from the waist down. Uh, but and suddenly one day, probably about I think it was about four or five years after this accident, he has this dream that he's going to play football at UAB and be one of the great tight ends at UAB. And he wakes up from this dream. After being in this depressed state where he was considering suicide and really kind of he would root for football teams to lose just so they would feel his pain, so they would feel a little bit better by seeing other people's misery, he wakes from this dream and he gets up and he goes out and he buys himself a pair of football cleats and he holds onto those cleats and he goes to the UAB and rolls there and starts networking his way into a chance meeting with the football coach at the time and tells him, I had a dream that I'm going to play football here and and you know, the coach looks at him and is like, you know, are you kidding me? You're, you're in a wheelchair, man. How, how are you going to play football? And he just he kind of considers it for a second. He's like, all right, be on a practice field at 5 a.m. tomorrow morning if you're serious about this. And Tim showed up and, uh, and did his drills with the team, did his push-ups every morning, whether it was rain or shine, earned the respect of his teammates. Next thing you know, his teammates are the ones like they're carrying him into uh, the shower after practice. They're, they're helping him around, and he becomes their biggest cheerleader. And, and to really understand the impact of Tim Alexander, you have to hear Tim Alexander speak. He is just an absolute firebrand preacher. He's got a career as an inspirational speaker, if anything. Uh, and so, you know, nowadays he's actually director of, of player character at UAB. They've kept him there to keep this charisma around. But Tim hears they're shutting down the program. He's sitting in the back of, of the room when Ray Watts comes in to tell the team. And it's in, an incredibly tense room. Uh, lots of shouting. Uh, several players are taking their chance, their, their turn to shout down Ray Watts. Uh, and when Ray leaves, there's a mob outside the football offices ready to, ready to greet him. And it takes six police officers to escort him to his car. And Tim w- wheels around. There's a door behind him. He wheels right out that door into the mob. 
and uh, holds up his football cleats in front of them and just tells him, and he's just he's bawling when he's saying this. He's like, I wanted so badly to wear these for you guys. And like, he's just telling them how much it meant for him to have the chance to be around a football program because athletics had provided him now with work with working with strength and conditioning coaches. They had replaced the physical therapy that his insurance wouldn't provide. He was at the point where he was finally able to stand unassisted for small periods. He was taking some making some progress toward walking again. I mean, it's just incredible what football had done with this kid. It, it literally saved his life. And now it was being taken away, and he wasn't going to have anything to do with that. So, you know, he basically is committing to this crowd as he rolls out amongst the protesters. He's like, okay, I'm, I'm going to lead this brigade. And for the next several months, he keeps the, the, the brand hot while uh, other things can happen in the background. He keeps the issue out in front of the public eye, leads student protests on campuses, um, leads a march to the basketball program where they do a blackout there. They're all wearing black t-shirts and they start chanting. Uh, you know, and th- These protests carry over then to the UAB basketball program's appearance in the NCAA tournament that year mm-hmm. where there were chants to fire Ray Watts at the tournament. Uh, and so Tim was responsible for keeping this alive and keeping the student body interested and keeping the city interested long enough for other things to be able to happen. So so you you've got a driving force and it's it's you know as as a writer if you're looking to tell a good story you need a person. You need to tell it through a person and and as you said Tim is as good a a, a person to tell this story as there is out there. It it generates now this this kind of grassroots movement and it's it, you have all it's coming from all sorts of directions. You have Tim Alexander, you have the city of Birmingham wanting to to change its image and continue its 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 resurrection, if you will. How does it then happen that that now this decision gets reversed. So Ray Watts, after all the 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 protests, I mean the 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 faculty has is given taken a vote of no confidence in him. The student body government has taken a vote of no confidence in him. There's a lot of pressure going against him, and so he says, "All right, look, I'm willing to take another look at this thing." And this is maybe like even just like a month after he initially made the, the original decision. He said, "I'm willing to take another look at this thing." But we need to understand that if we're going to change some things here, we, we're not going to increase the subsidy and we've got to bring this thing back the right way. And so he tells he tells kind of the group of supporters that have been backing this thing, uh, you know, like, look, if you can raise $17.2 million for this, that will fund us at the previous level and be able to let me justify bringing this back, then I'll reconsider this. And but you know, and that for a lot of programs, seventeen point two million dollars, you know, maybe you know, maybe if you're Ohio State or that's one booster, that's one booster writing a check after lunch for some of these places. Exactly. But we're talking about a program whose annual giving was somewhere around three million dollars. I mean, this was a miracle that he's asking for. And so I think for you know a lot of people, you look at that and go, okay, well, there's you know, I don't know what chance there is. Well, so uh, uh, they got a, a team together, kind of organized a, a committee uh, at the school to kind of look at this. Uh, and so Brad Hardikoff, the director of development, was part of this. And then there was, an, there was a, a, a booster or a former UAB player who had remained in Birmingham and been a fairly successful business person named Justin Kraft. And uh, Justin was really one of the, one of the, the, the big 
proponents of football at UAB. He'd been a kid that played at Georgia Tech early in his career and then ended up transferring to UAB just because he really felt inspired by the university. He met Gene Bartow on his recruiting trip there and just for whatever reason, he just really like felt attached to this to the school and had ever since. And so he starts working behind the scenes on the money aspect of it and trying to figure out, okay, who can we, you know, pull in here? And so it takes several months. He gets to about early May, and Justin's raised about twelve million dollars. And they're, they're just they're not quite there, and time is starting to run out. Tim Alexander has helped to keep you know everything warm and whatnot, but Conference USA requires all of its foot, all of its schools to sponsor football, and so on June 1st, the the Conference USA presidents are supposed to meet, and it's a very real possibility they're going to get kicked out of Conference USA, and so now they're in a real predicament. They're like, okay, well now you know we don't have football, we might have to go find another conference. Uh, you know we're in a real squeeze here. We think there's a chance we can bring football back, but we've got to you know we we making another $5 million in a month, that's going to be pretty tough. So um, t- uh, Justin ends up working with uh, his business partner who kind of knows a lot of people in the community. They pull a small group together and kind of explain this. And the, and the way they sell it is this isn't about UAB. This isn't about football. This is about how football helps UAB grow, how UAB helps the whole Birmingham community grow and how all those things working together help to change what our community can be. And it's a really compelling argument for, for uh, this small group of, inv- of business people in the town who have grown up in Birmingham, really feel attached to Birmingham, owe their success to Birmingham, uh, but don't have it, most of them don't have any ties to UAB. They never really even really uh, considered uh, you know, what football meant at UAB before. But when they suddenly start putting these pieces together, they kind of have this aha moment. And they're like, wow, uh, we can't let this happen. And these these forces coalesce. Uh, the the program gets reestablished. And where is it now? How would you describe the UAB program now? Well, it's it's uh, it's a remarkable comeback story. Uh, just it's it's really hard to put into words how different it is now. Um, you know that 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 field practice field I talked about that slope that was sloping ten yards that's gone now um, because they raised over $40 million in their capital campaign uh, when they needed to raise 17.2. And so in addition to getting enough money to bring the program back, they built a new football facility that is like taking them into a whole other world that they could never even dream of before. It's got an outdoor uh, pagoda over a practice field. So in Birmingham, you can pretty much practice year round outside. But here they have a place that's shaded. It's protected from the weather. It's an artificial turf field. So on that previous field, uh, it would get so soggy and muddy that the players told me that uh, their coaches had joked that they were backpedaling on ice when uh, you know the defensive backs were, were trying to defend receivers. Um, now they've got something that's you know much more on par with a competitive FBS football program. Uh, and it's got uh, a brand new locker room instead of these, you know, freestanding kind of temporary feeling uh, lockers. They've got a state-of-the-art locker facility, locker room, film room, nutrition stands. They've got a UAB Hall of Fame exhibit in the entrance. I mean, it's just as as Bill Clark, the football coach, was showing me the animated video of this. When I when I was there reporting on the story, this was the, the the building was there, but it was still kind of a shell of what it was going to be. It just opened in July, and he's showing me the the uh, uh, the animated video of this, and I, I turned to him. I'm like, 
do you ever feel like you won the lottery? <laughs> and, and he just kind of laughed. He's like, yeah, every day. Because you looked at this thing, and he didn't even have a football program a year before. And now he's got something that's state-of-the-art, and he's got a community that's that's rallying behind him. And as of this moment, they're 5-3 and three and on the brink of bowl eligibility. And, you know, it's it's really got to be one of those things, if you're a UAB fan, supporter, coach, player, I mean, you got to be pinching yourself and wondering, wow, how did this happen? It's a, it's a true athletic Cinderella story. Well, it, it's a great story. As I said, it was a, a marvelous article. Interesting how how you told the story that it, it needed to crash and burn in order to to, to be resident, to become the phoenix that it, arises out of the ashes. It, it really and did. I, I think the, the crash kind of helped to purge a lot of the previous images and frustrations, you know, it's, it's uh, now I think that they're, they, they can let go of these ideas that, you know, there's people out to keep the program down. Um, they can, you know, they, they now have a support of a community that maybe didn't realize what it had before. And they have a new level of support that I think gives them a chance to, you know, to kind of become a program that can be Birmingham's team. Yeah, and that's what they're hoping to be there. They're not looking. They've made clear many times they're not looking to take on the University of Alabama. That would be a foolhardy goal right. for them. But they want to be something that UAB can be proud of. And right now, I think that they're they're moving toward that. Well, Brian Hendrickson again, a a great story, um, a great college sports success story. Uh, I want to thank you for spending some time with us, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again real soon. You be well. Right, you too. Thank you for having me on. Does it for this. Um, session of College Sports Insider presented by the NCAA and Champion Magazine. I'm Jack Ford. Thanks for joining us, and we'll look forward to talking with you again real soon. <laughs>